Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. Today, in honor of the Christmas holiday, we're exploring a good old-fashioned ghost story. Normally, when we think of the holidays and ghosts, we tend to think of Halloween, for obvious reasons. Many of us forget about the tradition of ghost stories being told around the fireplace on Christmas Eve. This ritual was established long before Christmas was Christmas. Centuries ago, pagans celebrated the winter solstice in late December. It was believed that on this darkest day of the year, the veil between the living and the dead was at its thinnest and most penetrable. On this night, the dead could most easily commune with us, the living, if we only stopped our busy routines long enough to sense their presence. So imagine sitting back in an antique rocking chair as a burning Yule log glows bright against your face. Take another sip from your glass of eggnog as we wander back in time and explore a ghost story that has long faded from popular consciousness. Let's revive the legend of the Fallsville Christmas Ghost. It's a story not known to many Ohioans yet today. However, it's a story known all too well by residents of Highland County from many years gone by. Let's start by hearing about the legend from a local, a Mr. Justin Brown. Justin is a founder and lead investigator of the paranormal research team called Interface Death. You can find their website at interfacedeath.net. They're a team that travels the Midwest and produces video documentaries on legendary locations. One such documentary featured Fallsville itself. This isn't surprising given its close proximity to where Justin calls home. He was born and raised and still lives in Highland County. Let's hear about what he's learned on multiple investigations of the place. I've shot some stuff out there. It's hard to know how many times I've uploaded things out there, but I've, you know, collected footage of me just going out there. I take photos out there all the time. You know, it's just right down the road. I've been out there a couple times on Christmas Eve because of the legend just to see if I could see anything. Yeah, I was curious um, to hear from a, a native such as yourself uh, what the, the oral story is around and how it's connected to Christmas Eve in particular. The one version, the, uh, the Shawnee man who was killed out there by um, a gang of white men trying to intercept the uh, treasure that was being that the Indian possessed at the time. But when they caught up to him, he didn't have it. They couldn't get out of him where it was. So they killed him over it. Now that's the native American. They believe that the Clousers saw at the end of Fallsville lane. If you go out to Fallsville, there's a, it's just a gravel road, a one link gravel road. And it ends about maybe two tenths of a mile straight back into the wildlife reserve. And on the left, about, I want to say 20 yards, there's a well, there's a rubble pile of the blocks of stone where the house used to set. And the, I mean, you can't even see the foundation anymore. It's just a big pile of earth covering, okay. you know, the blocks. And that's right there at the end of the lane. That's where the Indian has was seen on Christmas Eve by the Clousers making hand gestures. Now, no one's seen this apparition other than the Clousers. There's been people before me go out there, historians, you know, people with interest in the legends, no one saw it but the Clousers. 
And there's another side story about the two Clouser daughters that were believed to be witches because they were strange, odd. So any anybody that didn't go to church and acted weird and did, you know, superstitious stuff were dubbed witches. So mm-hmm. the, the side story on that stated that the two girls hired a um, a water witcher to come out to, to try to witch for and douse for the treasure to find the treasure because the, the legend of the treasure is older than any of these stories. And it, that dates back probably late 1700s. And Fallsville was coming along. The lane was bought around 1810. And by about the 1820s, that's when people started settling in there. So the, the story of the treasure predates that. When the sisters died, they uh, told the community that, that they would uh, never tell if they found the, the treasure or not because people wondered if they did. And they were, they were set to uh, hand write out their wills and sealed it in their own blood. So I, that's probably just myth. <laughs> Doubt that they actually did that. But there, there's got to be some element of it that's actually true that kind of got skewed and, you know, blown out of proportion and added to over the years. The story's not well known. There's definitely some strangeness and weirdness that happens out there. But like I said, it's just... Screams, voices. Um, we just—I've—I've I've experienced weird crap out there, like you've seen in the documentary. I've—I actually did a photo shoot with my kids out there one evening during fall a couple years ago, and someone hummed a melody in my ear, and and it's it's, it's that kind of strange things that you just don't understand why that happens. Mm-hmm. For um for my listeners, many of whom I'm sure have never been there, can you kind of set the scene for what it? looks like and sounds like and uh when you're out there well it's it's pretty much any if you've been to southern ohio or anywhere in the midwest in the ohio valley it's very similar to that it's a rural area there's a lot of farm laying around so it's surrounded by fields and the uh, falls itself is nestled right in the uh, wildlife reserve over there in that area it's like a gravel lane there's a parking, uh, like a little lot out in front, and then they have a cable blocking off so cars can't actually go back. But you walk back, and the lane, the gravel lane stops about two-tenths of a mile, and then you're, you're looking at forest. So there's a trail, a clearing that leads back further. So when you go back, you'll come to a quarry, and that's where they actually quarry the uh, blocks for the housing houses and the mill that used to be there 200 years ago. You'll see that, and it's filled in with water, and it kind of looks like a pond, but you'll notice that there's, you know, cliffs where it's clear signs that it's been quarried. Now, there's definitely some stuff that happened around there, and then once you go back another tenth of a mile, it'll kind of veer off to the left towards where the falls are, and that's Clear Creek. And it's a pretty decent-sized waterfall. I want to say it's about 25, 30 foot tall. Stair steps down a couple times, and... uh it's very beautiful, very serene. Um, there's a lot of, you know, carvings into the rock over the years where the falls and the water has carved through there. So you'll see a lot of nice looking rock formations all surrounding by, you know, a pretty densely wooded area. It's a wildlife reserve, so they do nothing to it. They just let it go. But there's trails, you know, that go along Clear Creek and kind of branch around both north and south of Clear Creek. You can actually go down to the lower part of the Clear Creek area and come up to the falls if the water's not too high. And there's a lot of hikers that go back there all the time, trappers, hunters who hunt at the reserve. 
it, it, it's pretty populated until about October. Then, you know, it gets pretty chilly. So every yeah. time I go out there for like Christmas Eve, there's no one out there but me. <laughs> That'd be a little spooky and remote, I would think. Um, actually, it's very peaceful out there. I've never, I've never felt, well, there was one time I felt kind of not great when you're hearing screams <laughs> out in the middle of nowhere. That's never, that's always unsettling. But other than that time, it's always felt tranquil, but you feel like you're being stared at. You feel like there's a presence there, but there's nothing there. You have that, you know, that sense that someone's watching you or like you anticipate someone's watching you. And I always, I always wondered if it was what, you know, someone felt like when they were being followed or like they were being hunted, maybe like the, the Native American was when they jumped him. You know, I always wondered if that was the energy that I was picking up on. You know, and I've read a lot of reports on different websites and blogs and blogs about people going out there hearing drums, hearing talking, you know, all, all sorts of things. So that hopefully that kind of gives you a, a visual picture of what it looks like. But the, the history is cool because there's a cemetery like a, a mile down the road for where um, Fallsville is. There's still the Methodist church is still there. But all the Clousers from the story are buried there and they're very old stones. And you can go to that cemetery and go and check their whole plot out. That's um, some great history, and it's nice that you can still read the tombstones. A lot of times they get all worn down. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's very well taken care of. Um, so you mentioned the, the scream, and is that the one that you, was in the documentary that you heard? That was saying? Yes, yeah. We were sit, sitting there. What, what the, the, the most strangest thing during that investigation is those balls were dry. Clear Creek was completely dry didn't hear any water and all of a sudden it's like the movie lord of the rings where they release the dam and the water comes rushing down i mean that's the weirdest thing i've ever experienced almost as weird as some of the other things but it's pretty weird okay that's not supposed to happen (laughs) and it was really weird and then we started hearing screams we were hearing people walk around us like the cracking of branches it was obvious that there was movement around us and like we use emf detectors that you know try to see if there's any correlation with magnetic fields spiking during these times where the voices and the things happening correlate to each other. And we were getting that during that time too. So, you know, there was definitely a spike in uh strangeness. Oh yeah. Time. And you could kind of feel it just um, watching the video, uh, you know, to get a sense for the, uh, the feelings that were rising up. I'm sure with all the investigations you've done, you're familiar with that. Kind of sense. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it, most of them are not out in the woods. It's really hard to control the environment that way. Yeah. You know, animals can be making those noises. Someone possibly could have been back there screaming, but there's only one way in there. So if they were back there, they would have been back there sitting there all day. Because <laughs> I was there during the day doing B-roll. Like I was there for hours during the day leading into the night just to see if there was people coming and going, and there was right. no one. Yeah, that does make you make you wonder. And and I could hear the scream. Of course, anybody who watches the documentary could hear the scream. Um, And I'm no wildlife expert either. I don't know if like coyotes make sounds like that or. No, it was absolutely a human. So if it wasn't a ghost or whatever, it was definitely somebody back there screaming. (laughs) You you could sense it 
you know, just hearing it yourself with your own ears, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and when you hear it, it sounds like it's not someone just fooling around. It sounds like someone's in distress or pain or being attacked. Right. Today, Fallsville is a wildlife preserve. It's located about halfway between Columbus and Cincinnati. The nearly 1,400-acre preserve is comprised mostly of woods, meadows, and fields of grain. It's a sought-after fishing spot, with ponds stocked full of bass and bluegill. But the biggest draw is the picturesque waterfall, from which it derives its name. Visitors come upon the scenic spot after wandering down a half-mile hiking trail. At first, the din of rushing water can be heard in the distance, but as one continues down the trail, the sound grows louder, until finally, the falls can be seen in all their glory. Clear Creek plummets over the rough limestone edges, which are laid out like a giant staircase. It's a serene little spot, unexpected in its beauty amidst ordinary trees and shrubbery. Looking closely at the surroundings, visitors can spot remnants of the town which once existed, including building foundations and sections of property line fences. So just what does this location have to do with ghosts and Christmas for that matter? We've heard Justin offer a brief summary of the tale, as it's known by many locals. Let me tell you some more details behind the story. Legend has it that centuries ago, a Shawnee Indian chief was murdered near the scenic falls known today as Fallsville Falls. He'd been traveling home after trading with native tribes that inhabited points farther north and was looking forward to arriving in a Shawnee village. As he made his way by the roaring water, he was spotted by a white man trekking through the woods. And from the way the white man had taken off, the chief was sure more would return to confront him. He was alone, and the treasures he held in his possession belonged to his people. He hurriedly searched for a secluded spot and began digging at the wet soil with whatever he could find. On making a hole big enough to fit all his goods, he quickly filled it back in, then covered the spot with deadened leaves and branches. He took visual note of the location and its surroundings before fleeing. He hoped to put enough distance between himself and the white men, who were bound to come looking for him. The chief had indeed made some distance, perhaps a half mile, before hearing the unmistakable footsteps of men trailing behind him. He knew the sounds of the forest well, and surely knew when he was being tracked. He tried to run, but his energy had already been depleted from a full day's hike, followed by a frenzied digging and heavy ground. The group would reach him after only a short time. The man who had initially spotted him declared that he had seen the chief's heavy satchel, clearly weighed down with goods. The group demanded to know where it was. They demanded he turned over the treasures. He had no intention of doing so. They surmised that he'd stashed it somewhere near and insisted that he tell them where. The chief stood resolute and silent. The white men taunted him, spat at him threatened to beat and kill him. In response, the chief only turned to continue his trek home, where his family was waiting for him. Incensed, the white men seized on him and beat him until he died. The exact year of this awful event has long faded from memory, 
but the date remains. Christmas Eve. Perhaps the white men remembered the day because they'd stolen away from their families, just as dinner was about to begin and the carols were about to be sung. This is the first part of the legend, and it's based on oral history. Of course, there wasn't much in the way of written history back in the 18th century. Newspapers didn't exist in the wilds of the Ohio Territory. So we're left with the folktale as it's been passed down through the generations. The legend of a ghost associated with this beautiful spot wouldn't start until several decades later, when the majestic falls would give name to a tiny settlement called Fallsville. In the early 1800s, this village had three streets and maybe a dozen log cabins. Not long after the settlement was founded, a veteran of the War of 1812 by the name of Simon Clauser took note of the picturesque location. He decided to purchase the only stately home among the more modest cabins. It had been built by the settlement's founder, a Mr. John Timberlake. By 1820, the huge edifice made from local limestone was now occupied by the Clauser family. Its imposing facade stuck out against the more meager log cabins. Clear Creek's rushing waters provided a constant source of power for a local grist mill owned and operated by none other than Simon Clauser. The falls weren't only beautiful, the hydropower they offered gave the small town an industry. Simon and his wife Elizabeth would have four children, two boys and two girls. The boys would grow into successful men, one practicing medicine in Indiana. The other would head to New York City to pursue a career as a businessman. But what would come of the Clauser daughters? These two women would become the center of gossip, the talk of town, as they say. Their reputations would become entwined with the well-known legend of the Shawnee Indian chief who had been murdered there long ago. Charlotte and Susanna Clauser would come to inherit the entire estate on their father's death in 1881. By then, the tiny settlement of Fallsville had dwindled into nothing, save for the imposing Clauser mansion. This must have made the scene all the more unusual. Just picture what it might have felt like to come upon a huge stone mansion in the middle of the wilderness, not far from a serene waterfall. The rest of civilization had passed the place on by, allowing nature to reclaim the plots where cabins once stood. All that was left was the two-story colonial-style home that looked like it belonged on Fifth Avenue somewhere. Inside lived two women, spinsters in fact. The locals must have wondered at what it all meant and how it came to be. Combine that with a tale of murder and Native American history, and you have folklore run amok. Although the legend of the Shawnee Indian chief has no written record, the same is not true for the history of the Clauser sisters. By that day and age, newspapers were up and running. Although they often reported on important news of the day, they also served readers' thirst for the juiciest rumors on their neighbors. Newspapers were akin to today's social media platforms and gossip tabloids. Turns out, reporters had a lot to say about these two unmarried women who lived in luxury in the woods. The first juicy bit of gossip about the Clausers came well before Simon Clauser's death. In 1864, an article was published in the Highland Weekly News. 
It detailed claims that the Clauser family had refused to serve breakfast to two weary Union soldiers who'd shown up on their doorstep. Back then, in the heat of the Civil War, it was customary for civilians to offer soldiers food and lodging as they traveled through the region. It was a way to show support for the war effort. As it was, the Clausers had allegedly refused to offer breakfast when two soldiers arrived at their large and beautiful home one morning. They were on their way home to Marshall and were hungry and tired from traveling on foot. When the door was closed in their face, they had to hike on to the next remote home, that of Mr. Jacob Holmes. He had been the one to take the story to the editor of the Highland Weekly, and it went to print immediately. From that point on, suspicions grew that the Clausers were Confederate sympathizers. This story spread both deep and wide, and became accepted truth among the locals. The story had so much traction that an article published two years later, in 1866, acknowledged the ridicule the family had suffered since the story first surfaced. The editor wanted to correct the record once and for all, in stating that he had learned that Simon Clauser hadn't been home when the soldiers arrived, and that his wife, Elizabeth, was. Apparently, she had been the one to deny the soldiers breakfast, claiming she feared they might have smallpox. Simon had exonerated himself by publicly placing blame on his wife. The article went on to acknowledge the harm and shame casted upon the Clauser name, including the damage done to the children. Apparently, they'd been ridiculed and scorned by the entire community for more than two years. And further, the article stated it had learned of plans made by the Clauser sons to avenge their family's reputation by attacking the editors of the newspaper. Printing details of the planned revenge attack provided an insurance policy for the editors, as everyone would know the guilty parties should the young men make good on their promise. This is a drama worthy of a Shakespearean tragedy, and yet there's more to come. As I mentioned earlier, Simon Clauser died in 1881, leaving the stately home and the 200-acre property to his daughters, Charlotte and Susanna. By that time, his sons had both moved a considerable distance and were successful in their own fields. The Clauser family reputation had been tainted for decades and probably contributed to the sons' decisions to leave the area for good. This created an opportunity for two unmarried women to own a sprawling estate which housed an elegant mansion. The Clauser sisters would stay. They would embrace their roles as outcasts, as strange and perhaps undesirable members of society. Maybe it was these reputations that created the space for them to take on such unconventional positions for their time. They were women that refused to marry. They had their own wealth and had no need for male guidance or direction. Legendary stories would follow them for the rest of their lives and beyond. The most common outrageous tale was that of the spirit of the murdered Shawnee Indian chief. They claimed he would appear to them nearly every Christmas Eve. At the first sighting, he had appeared at the head of the trail that led to the waterfall. They spotted his transparent figure, dressed in native garb, staring blankly at them as the sun was setting. Both sisters could see him, 
and claimed that as he started to fade into nothingness, he began gesturing with his hands. He made deliberate movements as though using a kind of sign language. They were flummoxed at the entire scene and shared the experience with anyone who'd listen. Although they kept watching all year through, the Clouser sisters wouldn't see the ghost again until the following Christmas Eve. This time, they heard a knock on their front door. They both rushed to answer, as they rarely received visitors on account of their reputation and their remote location. There, standing before them, was the same transparent figure of a Native American man. This time, he started with the hand gestures right away, using the same movements and signs from before. In fact, he kept repeating specific movements in a sequence as he once again started to fade away into the cold, dark night. The sisters would claim that this ghostly visitor would return almost every year, on December 24th, and repeat the same hand gestures. They were convinced he was trying to tell them something urgent, perhaps the location of his buried cache of traded goods. They'd been so intrigued by the repeated sightings that they hired clairvoyants to come out to the property to tell them where the treasure was buried. They used dowsing rods in hopes of learning where it was hidden, but to no avail. They reached out to a man who had knowledge of the Shawnee language and imitated the signs they'd seen repeated to them so many times. The man could make no sense of the gestures. The story spread wide, not just among the locals, but throughout the region at large. Charlotte and Susanna Clouser would become known as witches, conjuring up and communing with the dead. Others believed the claims of holiday ghost sightings were bogus. They were nothing more than sensational stories meant to cover up the more outrageous and shameful truths about their lives which continued to be chronicled in local newspapers. What kind of stories? I'm so glad you asked. Following the death of their father, the sisters operated the 200-acre farm, which included sharecropping arrangements for tenant farmers. Not only were the sisters happy to live the comfortable life, free from the need to work or raise a family, they now amplified their wealth with the practice of sharecropping, an oppressive system that charged high rents to poor subsistence farmers who provided all the labor. Most sharecroppers were poor, and many were African Americans. On the night of March 7, 1886, a tenant home on the Clouser property suffered a catastrophic fire. It was a total loss. House fires were not uncommon in that day and age, especially considering the lack of public codes and fire prevention methods. What was unusual, however, were the sisters' claims that the blaze had been set by the sharecropping tenant himself, a Mr. Andrew Payton. This African-American man had been arrested for the crime. In one night, he had lost all his possessions and was then charged with starting the blaze himself. A local police detective claimed he had uncovered evidence of his guilt. Whether Andrew Payton ever set the blaze is uncertain. What is certain is that due process and protections of civil liberties for African Americans in those days were non-existent. Surely, a black man accused of setting fire to two wealthy white women's property would be found guilty, no matter the circumstances. 
As such, three months after the fire, Andrew Payton would be determined insane by a judge and sent to the Athens Insane Asylum. This man likely knew the fate he was due as the investigation against him ensued. The stress would have been enormous and would have tested anyone's sanity. Rumors soon spread that the Clauser sisters had bribed the local prosecutor into bringing Andrew Payton to trial. This harkened back to the claims that the Clausers had been Confederate sympathizers with racist views. The going story in this scenario was that Andrew Payton had not produced the crops he'd promised, and the relationship between tenant and landladies had gone sour. The claim was that the sisters had accused him of arson out of malice and revenge for his substandard work and failure to pay the rent. Two years later, charges would indeed be brought forth and a trial would ensue in February 1888. Many locals would testify to Andrew Payton's strong character and standing in the community. The claims that the Clauser sisters had bribed the prosecutor gained credence when, remarkably, the prosecutor remained mute throughout the entire proceedings. He didn't say a single word. There was no examination or cross-examination of witnesses in a trial where jurors only heard arguments made by the defense. The prosecutor could have easily dropped the case against Andrew Payton. He could have chosen not to prosecute. Why didn't he? My assumption, after deeply considering the possibilities, is that the prosecutor knew the pressures at play. He knew that any reasonable argument offered against the defendant would end in a guilty verdict. I believe his complete refusal to participate was the only way to both meet the demands of the Clauser sisters that he prosecute and ensure a not-guilty verdict for the beleaguered Andrew Payton, whom he clearly believed was innocent. In closing remarks to the jury, the judge noted the prosecutor's silence, calling him, quote, dumb as an oyster. The judge was befuddled, but nonetheless instructed the jury to convene to reach a verdict. In the end, 18 white jurors would be unable to do so. It was a hung jury. Just think of it. In a trial in which the prosecutor failed to say a single word, some jurors could not be convinced that a black man was not guilty of the crime of which he was being accused. The trial was dismissed. Andrew Payton would go free after suffering two long years in an insane asylum. Jump ahead 13 years to 1901, and the papers were still dishing about the Clauser spinsters. The claim this time was that no man was allowed to set foot in their home. So apparently, the women hated not only black people, but men. The story went that their brother, from New York City, had returned home for a visit. The door was reportedly slammed in his face. By that time, the sisters' nefarious reputation had grown far and wide with articles being printed in Cincinnati newspapers. The articles told of their eccentric style of dress and their unending wealth. The ill will growing against them was eventually met with opposing articles, proclaiming the sisters' hospitality and kindness towards all. In fact, the sisters invited people to come visit them. 
All anyone needed to do was to ask for directions to the Fallsville Falls. The women promised a warm welcome to all, and perhaps a picnic at the scenic spot. Whether these articles were ever successful at changing the sisters' reputation in the community is unlikely. Come 1908, Charlotte Clauser, the older of the two sisters, would die of natural causes at the age of 82. Her sister Susanna would go on living in the stately mansion alone until her death six years later in 1914. Her death would come after a fall down the staircase of the home where she had lived all her life. Neighboring children had found her body at the bottom of the stairs when they came over for a visit. An autopsy revealed that her death had been instantaneous due to a fracture in the neck. She had died only hours before the children found her body. She was 77 years old. Her obituary mentioned her larger-than-life reputation in the community, the death of her spinster sister years earlier, and her unending wealth. Even in death, the Clauser family reputation would not rest. Of course, two wealthy women dying, having no children to whom to bestow their huge estate, left a public intrigued with the possibilities of who might inherit it. A will did exist, and listed specific terms and benefactors. It would be contested. In a unique turn of events, the probate judge assigned to the case was the prosecutor who brought trial against Andrew Payton, and then refused to participate in it. Susanna had listed small dollar amounts to be given to unique individuals, some of whom she stated had shown her particular kindnesses through the years, including acceptance and love when so many had turned against her throughout her difficult life. But the bulk of her estate was willed to a Dr. V.B. McConaughey and his wife. Her will explained that the doctor had saved her life when she contracted blood poisoning and that he had been gentle in nursing her back to health. As the court hearings proceeded, relatives came forward to make claims against the will. It had been signed only a few weeks before her death, and the witness to her signature was one Charles McConaughey, an obvious family member of the doctor. The claim was that the doctor had placed undue influence on Susanna to change her will in the weeks before her death. In the end, the plaintiffs failed in their arguments, and Susanna Clauser's last will and testament stood. Dr. V.B. McConaughey and his wife would inherit the riches her family had held for decades. Today, you can find the graves of the Clauser sisters and their parents in a cemetery within Fallsville Wildlife Preserve. It runs adjacent to the old Auburn Methodist Church that's still located there. The tombstones are small and modest, and look to be made of limestone, perhaps the same material that has been carved for centuries by Clear Creek's ever-running waters. There's something peaceful in the notion that through all the lore and history, the falls have seen it all. They've witnessed a Shawnee chief traveling by on his way to returning home to share the bounty of a recent trade. They've witnessed the evil unleashed by the greed and hatred of men, entitled in taking anything they wish, including the life of someone viewed as unworthy. 
They've witnessed the growth of a town on its banks and the promise of a new community. They've witnessed the death of that town with its last two inhabitants, social outcasts, steely in their resolve to remain there. They've witnessed ghostly apparitions and rumors of buried treasure. They've witnessed destruction and fire and the injustice of what it means to live in this world as a person of color without privilege. Even though time has faded the Clouser sisters' larger-than-life reputations, there's something familiar and relatable in their story yet today. We all know those among us who push against the norm, those who don't follow the script and the stereotypes. That takes a certain kind of chutzpah. Most of us tend to fall in line for fear of calling unwanted attention, not the Clouser sisters. For all their faults, which certainly existed, they stood their ground. These women refused to marry and lived their lives as wealthy landowners in the 19th century, in a time and place when women couldn't vote. The power they wielded brought scorn and accusations of witchcraft. It brought hatred and bigotry. It brought rumor and public ridicule. And yet the sisters never left. They remained the last residents of Fallsville until their deaths there, inside the mansion where they lived all their lives. I hope someday you have the opportunity to take a road trip to see this little serene spot. You can easily find instructions for visiting Fallsville on the Ohio Department of Natural Resources website. It's public property, funded by our tax dollars. After wandering down a wooded trail past fishing ponds, you'll hear the falls calling you. Breathe the fresh air deeply as you continue on, toward the sound of rushing water. Consider the countless others, both living and perhaps not, who have shared this space. Consider their choices and the consequences of them. And then, when you've had your fill, take a leisurely hike back the way you came. I hope you take with you a deeper awareness of your own place in this world and your choices in it. This concludes today's episode of Ohio Folklore on the Fallsville Christmas Ghost. If you've enjoyed it, please rate, review, and subscribe to Ohio Folklore on your chosen podcast platform. Ohio Folklore can also be found at ohiofolklore.com and on Facebook. And as always, keep wondering. <laughs>